We are going to look this morning at Leviticus chapter 3. This is the fellowship offering, otherwise known as the peace offering. Those terms are used interchangeably. And in the NIV, it's noted as the fellowship offering. Other translations, you'll see it called the peace offering. Either one of those terms. Uh, and it really is a, a broadly defined uh, offering. But uh, those terms will both describe aspects of it. As we consider this, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever, anybody ever felt uh, unsettled inside? You know what I'm talking about? Unsettled, uh, maybe not content. Anybody struggle with contentment? Just one or two of you, okay. How about uh, distressed? A few more, okay. How about this one, in desperate need of peace? Oh, a few more hands, okay. <laughs> this, is a, this is a common dilemma of nearly everybody at different junctures of their life, certainly. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you lived in ancient times or modern times. Uh, everybody struggles with these issues. It's just a product of our condition, our human condition. We don't like to be unsettled. We, we, we we're frustrated. We don't like that about ourselves, uh, being distressed about things. Um, the, re- the reality is, is, is that that's our human condition. The soul of man, essentially, is unsettled. The soul of man is not content. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in Philippians chapter 4. There's a secret to this. And uh, the soul of man simply is just as restless, uneasy. It's a constant struggle. Most people today are usually wanting to be on the move, to be someplace they are not. It's hard to be still, all because of a restless spirit that grips them. Most people today are usually not satisfied with what they are doing, where they are in life. They want to change this, they want to change that. Most people are not content with a number of things in their life. They hope for, they look ahead to something else or maybe even someone else in their life. Most people today are often uneasy and disturbed over varieties of issues. They look at our society and the condition of our society, the lawlessness and so forth, and it creates a great sense of dis-ease in their life. And when they look to governing officials and the apparent weakness and failures of our government or any government, uh, that creates only more anxiety and more dis-ease. Most people are tragically subjected to distress over a number of issues. Sickness, disease, broken relationships, failures, shortcomings, every imaginable trial or temptation can create terrific distress. So the bottom line really is that the soul of man is restless. 
The soul of man is unsettled in desperate need of peace. Man simply needs the peace of God and fellowship with God. That's what it boils down to. We need God's presence in our life. We need His presence. With His presence comes truly a sense of purpose, comes rest, comfort, satisfaction, fulfillment, confidence, assurance. All that comes from the fellowship and the peace of God. Now the question is, how can we secure the fellowship and the peace of God? All of us know as Christians that uh, we are to have God's peace in our life. We long for God's peace in our life. But the reality is that there are so many things assailing us or that we, that we focus on that result not necessarily in peace, but rather in dis-ease. Is that a fair statement for me to make? There are two kinds of peace that God gives. The first is peace with God, peace with Him. It is good to be at peace with God. Would you agree? So His guns of judgment aren't trained on you. No condemnation. To be at peace with God. He gives that peace. We know that man is separated and alienated from God because of one thing. What's the one thing that has caused separation and alienation from God? Sin. Now your local therapist is not going to tell you that. I'm sorry, but that's the reality of it. It's man's sin. It's his own innate evil and lawlessness. All of us would agree that, that down deep we are rebels, are we not? Yes. I mean, someone tells you to do something and instantly there's this impulse, no. And, and it starts when we're little bitty people. One of the first words out of a child's mouth is what? No. You say, well, where did you learn that? <laughs> we just tighten our little hearts and we just say, no, that we are innately rebellious. We want to go our own way, do our own thing. That's man's condition. And that causes restlessness. That causes disturbance in our life, in our heart. It all comes from sin, this condition. But there's an answer for that. And the answer is found in the atonement. In other words, the answer is found in reconciliation with God. That's where it starts. We saw this reflected in the burnt offering. The burnt offering of chapter 1. That offering was totally consumed on that altar. A picture of Jesus Christ and His life being totally consumed on that cross for the express purpose of bringing atonement, at-one-ment with God. That ancient Israelite 
when he offered that burnt offering, could have confidence because of the aroma from the offering that was signaled that it was acceptable to God. And being acceptable to God, now that Israelite had confidence that he was acceptable to God. And again, that was a, that was a picture of Christ and his sacrifice for us. And it was in Christ that that picture was fulfilled. He says himself in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus' own words are, that I had come to give his, he, he said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. A ransom. This burnt offering ransomed the Israelite. They were free. And today, when we turn from sin, we call that what? Repentance. When we turn from sin and we turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to turn in faith to Jesus Christ? It means simply to believe Him. To believe in Him. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way that my sin can be dealt with, except that I'm going to deal with it for eternity unless I trust Christ. So I believe in Him. I believe what He says. I trust Him. I trust that His death on the cross paid the full price for my sin. There is nobody else that I believe in. I don't believe in Muhammad. I don't believe in Krishna. I don't believe in Buddha. I don't believe in any of the modern gurus. I believe in Jesus. Nobody else died for my sins. Nobody else offers me life as a free gift. So when I repent and I turn to Him, I believe Him, then at that very moment, a miracle happens, and the miracle is that God makes peace with me and reconciles me to Himself. I'm no longer under His wrath. I'm no longer under His judgment. He makes peace with me. You know, we have a we we, we talk about uh, people who are who are uh, getting ready to, to die, pass on, and we proverbially say to them, "Have you made peace with God?" You and I can't make peace with. It's up to Him to make peace with us. It may sound like a small thing, but really, it's a huge issue. I can't do anything about it except believe. I come with empty hands of faith, trusting and believing that He makes peace with me. So the first kind of peace that God offers is peace with Him. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says, When we were God's enemies, when I was at my very worst, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. When I could care less, the last thing on my mind, when I was still his enemy, God reconciled me to himself through Jesus. He says the same thing in another way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. It's Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. He's the only way. So peace with God is established. And because peace with God is established, we can now begin 
to fellowship with God. And that leads us to the second kind of peace that is the peace of God. You can't know and experience the peace of God in your life to still and quiet your distress, your anxieties, your fears, unless first you're at peace with God. Does that make sense? God, I want to know your peace. Well, you've got to be at peace with Him first. Once we have peace with Him, the peace of God begins to fill our spirit, begins to fill our life. As Paul says, His peace will guard our mind and heart. Keep us from going over the edge. Keep us from flipping out. Keep us from being anxious and fearful and consumed with distress. That's why when, when you are full of the Holy Ghost and you're experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, of which part of which is peace, people look at your life and they say, how can you be so peaceful? And you say, well, I, just God. <laughs> I, know, I know He's sovereignly in control. I know He's working His will out in my life. Yeah, but all this craziness going on in your life, how can you... God... This is, that's the only answer. He's given me His peace by His Spirit. His peace settles within us. We have fellowship with Him. We know His presence. He's present in my life. It's not just theoretical. I know His presence in my life. I know His comfort. I know His rest. I know His purpose is good. He satisfies me. He fulfills me. He gives me confidence and assurance. You see, once a believer has secured peace and fellowship with God. The question now becomes, how can he or she experience a continuous flow of God's peace and fellowship? That becomes the issue. I'm at peace with God. I've received His peace. How, how can I now secure a continuous flow of His peace? How can I con- secure a continuous fellowship with him that's the whole subject of chapter 3 of the book of Leviticus that's the purpose for this offering it was such for the ancient Israelites this offering is a voluntary offering that is absolutely key write that down someplace it's a voluntary offering now I just want to just talk you through the structure of the chapter we're not going to read it this morning Like the first two chapters, chapter 3 is divided into three sections. The first section covers the first five verses. And it describes simply the offering of the herd, which would be a, a, a cattle, if you will, a bull. These animals particularly were known as animals of service. They served man. 
But they also, that particular animal also pictured Jesus as the servant of God. The second section, verses 6 through 11, pictures the sacrifice of the sheep. And again, the sheep were symbolic of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the third section, verses 12 through 17, chronicle the offering of a goat. And a goat, again, symbolic of Jesus, as the goat bearing God's judgment against sin. You recall uh, the scapegoat who uh, was sent out into the wilderness. This is the same symbolism. So these animals are chosen for a reason because they symbolize aspects of Christ's work to ensure ongoing fellowship and peace. This was the whole point of this particular offering. Each of those three sections begins in the same way, with the same pattern. They open with the statement, if someone's offering is, and then they state the offering, he used to offer a male or female without defect. So in the burnt offering, it could only be a male animal without defect. In the fellowship or peace offering, it could be male or female, uh, but it had to be without defect. You could bring that animal. And then the different tasks of the offerer and the priest are specified the worshiper, once again, as in the burnt offering, um, kills and cuts up the animal while the priest splashes the blood on the altar and burns the specified parts of the carcass on the altar. This is significant. The fellowship or the peace offering always follows the burnt offering, and in this case, the cereal offering or the grain offering. Why is that, do you think? If the fellowship offering is meant to uh, provide ongoing fellowship or ongoing peace with God, then it must be founded on the burnt offering. If I'm to have peace, the peace of God, it only has to come because I'm at peace with God. That burnt offering provided peace with God. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? So you could never offer the fellowship or peace offering all by itself. It always had to follow a burnt offering. And those parts of the animal were laid on top of the burnt offering. And we'll talk about those parts in a couple minutes. Now the root word that describes this offering, from which we get the word fellowship or peace, the root word in the Hebrew is a very, very broad word. And it includes a number of thoughts, a number of meanings, um, it means something like wholeness. It could mean also um, harmony, completeness. Those would speak to complete fellowship with the Lord, harmony with the Lord, uh, keeping within the covenant, the covenant of peace. So, it could be described a number of ways. It was a very, very broad term. So a sacrifice of a peace or a fellowship offering uh, is one that aims at literally strengthening the wholeness of this relationship, this ongoing relationship with God. And again, it was a voluntary offering. If an Israelite wanted 
to continue in relationship with God and know the peace of God, then he would bring these offerings on a regular basis and they would be voluntary. You didn't have to do it. It wasn't like the burnt offering and it wasn't like the grain offering. And he would demonstrate, literally it's a demonstration of wholehearted faithfulness uh, to the Lord and to his covenant. It's like if you're in a covenant relationship with somebody, and what is, what is probably the most obvious covenant relationship we have visibility to us? Marriage, right? It's in a covenant relationship. So you want, you want peace in that relationship, right, guys? <laughs> so what's necessary for you to have peace in that relationship? You keep bringing yourself as an offering. Make sense? And it has to be voluntary, because if you have to do it, is she going to appreciate it? Not nearly as much as if it's apparently very voluntary. You want to do this. Sometimes we have to reduce it down to the ridiculous so we get the point across. But you understand, this is a voluntary offering. God didn't require it, but if you wanted to enjoy this ongoing fellowship with God and have confidence that and know the peace of God, then you would bring these prescribed offerings. Now, in chapter 7 of Leviticus, turn there real quickly and note beginning at verse 12 through the whole end of chapter 7, at start verse 12, there's this whole discussion and it really fills out more the information about this particular offering. And in chapter 7, we have three, three occasions, specified occasions, for the Israelite to bring this particular offering. One, it would be brought as an expression of either confession or thanksgiving. One or the other. And this would be appropriate in two different situations. One, when someone was seeking God's deliverance, either from his enemy or from uh, some sickness. God, deliver me, save me. Now, he already has peace with God. The burnt offering has already been brought, but now he's seeking another element, if you will, another blessing from God, deliverance, expression of peace, if you will, in his life, peace from his enemies, peace from uh, sickness or attack in some sense. In such cases, a person may, in fact, feel that uh, he needs to confess his sins because maybe the reason for his predicament is because he has unconfessed sin. We don't know, but that's certainly a possibility. And so he would bring an offering. Or secondly, he could offer the sacrifice after he had been delivered. In that case, the confession would not center on his own sinfulness, it would center on his gratitude to God for delivering him from that particular uh, issue. Psalm 56 speaks about this. Psalm says, I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, interestingly, in those two verses in Psalm 56, uh, there's, an, there's a close association between the uh, confession slash thanksgiving 
peace offering, and the second kind of offering, which is a vow offering. In different circumstances, people often made a vow to the Lord that if he would help them, that they would do something for him. We very often will say that. We'll very often say, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do that, right? So you kind of make a vow. Jesus says, uh, don't make any vows. Just let your yes be yes. If you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, just follow me. Let's not get into a big whole program about it. But in Israel, this was the case, and it is typical of human nature in many ways. So when the Israelite would fulfill his or her vow that he's made, they would also bring this fellowship offering to accompany the fulfillment of the vow. Jacob is a great example of this. Back in the book of Genesis, you remember that uh, he was fleeing town. His brother was mad at him. His mom said, you better get out of town. You're in big trouble. And so Jacob flees. He's at Bethel. And uh, at Bethel, he makes a vow to the Lord that if God would bring him back home safely, then he said, Lord, you will be my God. Genesis chapter 28. In chapter 35 of Genesis, we see that God does bring Jacob back home. And he brings him back home safely after his long time away. And we find Jacob building an altar again at Bethel where he'd made the vow. Jacob builds the altar at Bethel and he offers a thank offering on that altar. I think probably the best known vow and peace offering in the Old Testament is found in the case of uh, uh, the birth of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is a tremendous account. A woman by the name of Hannah is married. Her husband's name is Elkanah, and he's, he has two wives. The other wife has multiple children. Hannah is childless, and to be childless in Israel was to look, be looked upon as being cursed. And so this is a source of great grief to her, notwithstanding the fact that the other wife kind of strutted her stuff around the house, and she was able to give the husband offspring, and poor Hannah was not. So as you might understand, Hannah was somewhat distressed and disturbed. And in verse 11 of chapter 1, she's in the temple, and she prays and she asks God to give her a son. And uh, she makes a vow. She says, if you give me a son... I will dedicate him to you. He will become a Nazarite. He will fulfill a Nazarite role. And uh, so God does. God answers her prayer. And Samuel is born. She keeps him for only a short time while she nurses him. And then she weans him. And then she takes him to the temple. She turns him over to Eli, the high priest. She fulfills her vow. But when she does... You read in that first chapter when she comes back to the Lord and she acknowledges God's answered her prayer, she fulfills her vow. She dedicates Samuel back to the Lord. She also brings this lavish, lavish peace offering in acknowledgement of God's provision and answered prayer. So it's a vow offering, a vow peace offering. The third occasion would be simply referred to as a free will offering. A free will offering uh, was just a spontaneous act on the part of the worshiper. It would be prompted simply by his acknowledgement of God's goodness. Is God good? 
Yeah. And so here you're a worshiper in ancient Israel and, and you are just you're just struck by God's general goodness. And so you just spontaneously want to bring a free will offering to express your uh, your just your gratitude, your praise, your worship, your appreciation uh, for God's unexpected, unasked for generosity. Is God just do things for us and we don't even ask? Yes. So that that would be the third occasion for one of these kind of offerings. Now, when the worshiper would bring the offering to the uh, to the tent of meeting to present it, uh, just like the burnt offering, he was to lay his hand on the head of the animal. This is identification. Uh, he's identifying with the animal. And remember, with the burnt offering, it wasn't just to lightly lay his hand on. He leaned heavily on the animal. A picture, I think, of us leaning heavily on Jesus because that's who the animal would represent. So the same thing here. He leans on that animal. He, this, is, this animal is going gonna to transfer to this animal all of his heartfelt purpose, desire, longings, praise, etc. And it was probably at this point when he does that that he explains why he is offering the sacrifice. Either it's part of, the, of a vow fulfillment, it's just a, a free will offering, or it's uh, an expression of thanksgiving, whatever the case may be. And these sacrifices were seen as joyful occasions, unlike the burnt offering, a uh, very, very solemn event. These were joyful occasions. Uh, and I, I think you'll agree, when God has saved and blessed His people, they can and should worship Him, and they should do so joyously. They should enjoy worshiping Him. Now, atonement is not a prominent part of this offering, but there is blood included. When the animal is slaughtered, the blood is taken by the priest and it's splashed, just like in the burnt offering, it's splashed on the altar. While that doesn't mean atonement like the burnt offering, it is a continual reminder to the worshiper that he is continually in need of God's forgiveness. We're always dependent on God, aren't we? Always dependent on Him. He has forgiven us. He is faithful to forgive us. But we can't presume on that. It's easy to do so. It's easy to be very casual and lapse into an attitude of uh, what's called uh, a sense of cheap grace rather than being very, very appreciative and understanding that I, I continually need His grace in my life. And so this offering also had a blood component. Now, in the fellowship offering, there were certain parts of the animal that were actually offered to God in this ceremony. The fat, the covering of the liver, and the kidneys. You say, wow, that's exciting. There's a reason those particular parts were offered to the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, under the Mosaic Law, neither blood nor fat could be eaten. We know the reason for blood because blood was used in the atonement. The life was in the blood and atonement was made through it. Leviticus 17.11 Fat also could not be eaten. I love to eat fat. Do you? I mean, I love the smell of burning fat as I drive past in and out. 
I mean, it's just incredible. You, ever, you drive by these places? Lord, help us if we're hungry. It's bad enough if I'm, I'm not hungry just to smell that Burger King or In-N-Out. But fat was synonymous with the best in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 45, indeed, this expression is used. Pharaoh talking to Joseph about bringing his father and his family down to Egypt to live. Pharaoh says that uh, they will enjoy the best of the land of Egypt, the fat of the land. So that very expression denotes the best, the fat. We use the same expression too. So by giving the fat, the worshiper was giving the best of the animal. And by extension, the animal was meant to represent the worshiper. True? That's why he laid his hands. Identified with the, with the animal. The animal is going to be sacrificed. It's a picture of the worshiper sacrificing the best of his life so that he can enjoy the peace of God and continuing fellowship with God. This ongoing completion of what had begun with the burnt offering. Does that make sense? Well, to some of you it makes sense. Okay. And so the, the, the offering of the fat was very simply meant to represent the worshiper. He was showing that he was giving his very best to God. Now also, the kidneys, the reason the kidneys were offered... Uh, is because the kidneys pictured the, the, the deepest part of a man, the, the seat of his emotions. We say something like, have some heart. The Israelite would say, have some kidneys. <laughs> we say, you don't have any heart. The Israelite would say, you don't have any kidneys. <laughs> you have any guts, so to speak. Okay. So this is, they're very graphic people, and in the, in the kidneys, that deepest part of the of the of the inner part of man was symbolic of uh, of his his deepest emotional part of his life. And the the fellowship offering, when you think about it, was indeed basically uh, given in what you could call emotional kinds of situations. You're making a vow. There's terrific emotion in making a vow, isn't there? God, I, 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 I promise you. There's terrific emotion when you uh, bring a, um, a thanksgiving or you're seeking God's deliverance in a situation. So there's relevance there, I think. The fellowship meal also, or the fellowship offering, also closed with a meal. This was, uh, this was a, a wonderful experience. And as you might understand, it's probably uh, the best part of the whole deal uh, for the Israelite. The priests were assigned certain parts of the animal. There's the, the, the fat, the kidneys and such were offered on the altar on top of the burnt offering. And then the priests were given a portion of uh, breast and the right thigh for their portion. And then the balance of the carcass was turned back to the worshiper uh, to share with his family and friends in a meal. And the meal was to be held in the presence of God in the sanctuary, uh, in the sanctuary area. And again, this was the most popular part of the service. Imagine, if you will, that we were going to have a potluck 
after service. And you could smell all the food on the tables in the back of the auditorium. You could hardly wait till I'm done speaking, right? <laughs> well, you would dutifully say, Pastor, we enjoyed the teaching, but the most popular part is the food. Serve food and they will come. Right? So this was a, this was a meal. And it was a meal in which God's presence was recognized as especially near, and this made uh, it a particularly joyful occasion. God's presence is here. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 7, uh, we read uh, uh, Moses describes this event, and he says, Then in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and rejoice in everything you put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Doesn't that sound marvelous? In the presence of the Lord, we're going to have this fellowship meal. We're at peace with God. We're going to enjoy the peace of God. What a marvelous picture. And this was, this was conveyed to the Israelites that they would be eating in the very presence of God. You couldn't get in a better, safer, more peaceful place than in the midst of His presence. Now, if you were not at peace with Him, you would not necessarily want to eat in His presence. So eating meat, by the way, if you didn't know this, eating meat was a luxury in ancient Israel, unlike for us. All meat came from animals given by the worshiper to God, and now uh, partly given back to the worshiper by God. So he brings this offering, whether it be uh, of, the, of, the, of the herd, of the flock, whether it be a sheep or a goat, he brings it. Part of it's offered on the altar, part of it's given to the priest, and the balance is given back to him. Isn't that a marvelous picture? And so whatever meat they got to eat came, again, from God's hands. They offered it to him, and he gives them back a substantial portion of that. This symbolized, very simply, the way God gave back to the worshiper his life to go on enjoying. That's what it symbolized. The worshiper had made his vows to keep the covenant or to do something more specific if his prayers were answered. And now that sacrificial meal, God granted a tangible pledge of his promised blessings by giving back to the worshiper that meat. The enjoyment of eating the meat, just enjoying it. I mean, how many like a good steak? I mean, just a, you, you, just a good steak. Prime rib. A double-double. I mean, the enjoyment, the enjoyment of eating the meat was a physical reminder of all the other blessings that went with obedience to the covenant. It was that simple reminder. It was an enjoyable thing. It was a pleasurable thing. It was a blessing to them. But it was symbolic of all the other blessings that God would heap on you if you were an Israelite uh, for keeping the covenant. God says, do these things and I'll bless you. Do these things and I'll curse you. Keep the covenant and you'll be blessed. And all that was symbolized in this fellowship meal that came and resulted as this fellowship offering or peace offering. It was a, really a pledge in a physical illustration of all the benefits that may be enjoyed by those at peace with God. That's where it all starts, at peace with God. Now, there's a 
in the New Testament, uh, the word sacrifice is used in a number of places, and it is a more general term which does refer to a fellowship offering. I want to describe a couple of those for you. Now, in your notes, there's a reference. It should be Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I think it's Hebrews, isn't it, in the notes? should be Hosea. Hosea 6, 6 says that God desires, what? Mercy rather than sacrifice. And Jesus himself twice quotes that passage. He does so in Matthew's Gospel, uh, verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 13, and chapter 12, verse 7. But the point being is that this is the very essence of the fellowship offering. It involved the worshiper declaring God's mercies. You see, it was all, it's all about God's mercies. I'm at peace with Him, and by His mercy, I, I can know His peace. And I'm acknowledging that by bringing this offering. And it also is symbolic of the worshiper's commitment to keep the covenant. So there's a commitment on his part. God is merciful, but I, I want to make sure that I make a statement about keeping his covenant. All of that is wrapped up in this fellowship offering. Paul takes it a little step further in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, in view of God's what? Mercy. See, Paul acknowledges God's mercy, and he wants, he wants believers to acknowledge God's mercy. Has God been merciful to you? Absolutely. And we pray that. We acknowledge that. We say continually, God, you have been merciful to me. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your continual mercy. Thank you that, I have, that you've had mercy on me, that, that you're at peace with me. I'm at peace with you. And thank you because of your mercy, I can know your peace. So Paul says, in view of God's mercy, our response, just like the ancient Israelites, in view of God's mercy... They would bring this sacrifice. Paul says, I want you to bring your what? Yourself, your body, everything that you are, not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. Someone once said the only problem with a living sacrifice is once it gets on the altar, it wants to wiggle off real quick. You've heard that. And he says, this is, this is our spiritual worship to offer our life in fellowship with Him. Because we can now, and as we do so, we know His peace as well as fellowship with God. That you, you offer your life. You seek Him, simply. In Hebrews chapter 13, you see the same kind of idea. Verses 15 and 16, the writer of Hebrews calls us to continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Now why? Well, because I have in view His mercy to me. There's, there's no other reason. He's a merciful, gracious, compassionate, forgiving God. He is worthy of praise. He's an awesome God. Therefore, he says, offer continually the sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess His name. If you confess His name, if you call on the name of the Lord, do so with thanksgiving and praise. And He says, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Sometimes it's a sacrifice to do good. Sometimes it's a sacrifice 
to share with others. We don't always want to. We're not always ready to. And these are sacrifices. This is part of offering yourself, as Paul says, as a living sacrifice. Now, more directly to the Old Testament fellowship offering related to that is, and and I thought this was fascinating, uh, that God would dovetail uh, this teaching on the fellowship peace offering with communion. Because this offering can be related directly to the Lord's Supper. Isn't that amazing how God dovetails things? What a marvelous coincidence, I thought. <laughs> At the Last Supper, you recall, and these Paul recounts this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Jesus referred to the cup of wine as the new covenant in my blood. Do you recall those words? The new covenant in my blood. When he did that, he was calling his disciples' attention back to the book of Exodus, back to the covenant that God made with ancient Israel. And you recall in Exodus chapter 24, when the people agreed to God's covenant, they agreed to his terms. They said, we will do all that God has commanded us to do. Moses then took and offered burnt offerings first and then fellowship offerings. He offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He took the blood from those offerings, half of which he sprinkled on the altar. The other half, what did he do with the other half of the blood? Anybody remember? Sprinkle it on the people. He sprinkled the second half of that blood of those two offerings on the people And then he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. So Jesus, when he says, This is the covenant in my blood at the Last Supper, he's alluding to that event back there. God is making a covenant with his people, and it's a covenant made through blood. So that people could be at peace with him, and that they could have and know his peace in their life. Very, very, very important. Now, the Last Supper was more like the fellowship offering than the burnt offering. It's easy for us to think, well, the Last Supper, the offering of Christ, is kind of like the burnt offering. But the Last Supper is more like the fellowship offering because both were a meal. The fellowship offering was eaten. The Last Supper was eaten by his disciples. The burnt offering wasn't eaten. The burnt offering was totally consumed on the altar. That's a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. Totally consumed. The sharing, his sharing of his body and blood with his disciples forms a very, very close parallel with the fellowship offering. In addition, both the fellowship offering and the communion service demand that the worshiper be clean. Chapter 7, verse 20 of Leviticus. Notice, if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, with respect to the Lord's Supper, verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats 
the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a, a, another way to say a number of you died. There's, a, there's a, a discipline of death, apparently. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So both in the Old Testament and as well as in the New Testament, we're told that divine judgment is promised on those who eat without recognizing the body of the Lord. That simply means that the elements, the, in our case the matzah and the juice, those elements symbolize the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His bodily suffering and death on our behalf. And one who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of Christ is guilty of, in effect, mocking and treating with indifference the very person of Jesus. You sin against him. And Paul says, and in so doing that, uh, we put ourselves under judgment. So we come to the communion table in a, in a very solemn manner, but there's also a, a, a joyful component, just like in the fellowship meal. So the Christian, in Old Testament times, again, because of those fellowship offerings, uh, the worshiper praised God, could make vows, and brought his petitions to God. So also you and I, as we come to the Lord's table, we make our vows we make our promises, we rededicate ourselves, we recommit ourselves, we bring our petitions, we thank Him, we praise Him, we ask for His help. All that, and as well as acknowledging all that He's done. Tremendous parallels between that Old Testament fellowship offering and the New Testament communion table. And lastly, because the Israelite fully expected uh, that God would be present with them in that meal because they would eat it in His presence. We know that God is present with us in eating this meal. And this meal, really, this communion meal, uh, reminds us, one, of our salvation because of Jesus. We look back toward that. But not only that, when you contemplate those elements, as you take those elements this morning, they remind us and assure us of His favor in the present. And they also are a promise that He will continue to bless us until He comes again. So there's a past, present, and future component in this meal. This pictures, again, His continual fellowship and His peace in our life. Now there's one other issue and this is, a, a, I think, a striking contrast uh, between the Old Testament uh, fellowship offering and uh, the communion meal, and that is in the use of the blood. Under the Old Covenant, uh, as we said, the drinking of blood was strictly prohibited. But now, under the New Covenant, it's expressly required, albeit we do so under the guise of the wine or the, or the juice. We, in effect, drink the blood of Christ. 
You say, now why is that? Now remember, it's blood that makes atonement for sin. True? It's blood that makes atonement for sin. By drinking it, it's a reminder to the Christian that he is saved, again, by the blood, but the blood has a capacity to cleanse, doesn't it? Is it an external cleansing or an internal cleansing? It's internal. So we drink the juice, we drink the wine, symbolic of the blood, reminding us of this continual internal cleansing that Christ provides by his blood. I think a remarkable picture. Remarkable picture. The Lord's Supper should be like the peace offering. Solemn and joyful. Solemn and joyful. Solemn because no one can and should lightheartedly enter God's presence. Eat the elements, pledge faithfulness. You don't do that lightheartedly. Solemn event. Joyful because God's grace and His promise exceed all that we can ask, think, or imagine in this life and the next. We have a great, great hope. So as we come to the Lord's table, we do so. We examine our our minds, we examine our hearts, we examine our lives. It's a solemn event, but it's also a joyful event, pictured by that great meal that the ancient Israelites celebrated. I began our time this morning and I said, how do we grow in fellowship with God? How do we gain more of the peace of God within our hearts? All summed up by these offerings, very simply, can be stated this way. By seeking, seeking more fellowship, seeking more peace, the peace of God. How do I do that? Just like the ancient Israelite, they would bring their offerings They would bring their offerings, these fellowship, these peace offerings, the very kind of offering they brought. They brought it according to the prescribed manner. They could be assured that they would have ongoing fellowship and they would know the peace of God in their life. Beloved, as you and I bring our lives as continual sacrifices to Him, as He's prescribed, we can enjoy ongoing fellowship and we can know the peace of God in our life in the midst of all that seeks to distress us, all that we can easily be unsettled over, all that we can be discontented by. It's simply we seek Him. Jesus sums it up when He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things will be taken care of. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be worried about anything. Just seek Him, seek Him, seek His fellowship, and seek His peace. Amen? Amen. Would you believe you could get all that out of chapter 3? Just amazing. Let's pray. Fathers, we anticipate your table, and as we have read and studied and understood a little bit more about this fellowship, this peace offering, the implications for us, just as the ancient Israelite, that we could have assurance of your continual fellowship, or rather our fellowship with you. And 
And Lord, that we could know more and more of your peace in our life, your peace that guards our minds and hearts. Father, we confess to you this morning that we are easily distressed. We are easily frustrated. We are easily um, tossed about by circumstances. Lord, we find ourselves many times without peace, anxious and fearful. But Lord, you promise peace. We come to you this morning. We come to your table fully believing, God, that you will grant us that. And Lord, as we continue to come to you and seek you and seek fellowship with you and seek your peace, you provide it. And for that, we give you grateful thanks and and praise. We love you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.